Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show is an exploration on acquiring, operating, and growing small companies through conversations with business owners and private investors. You can learn more and stay up to date on this podcast, our weekly newsletter, and print publication, The Operator's Handbook at alexbridgman.com. And follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. My guest in this episode is Jamie Shaw. Jamie worked in investment banking and Google before returning to her family's business, Chem Impacts International, which manufactures materials for life sciences companies as VP of operations. Today, she is the managing director of the company and a professor at Chicago Booth, where she teaches a course on family business. Our discussion focuses on lessons to be learned from family businesses, which are more trusted, stable, and generate higher returns. We talk about what success looks like in family businesses, the balance of paradoxes, and how to apply principles that make family businesses successful to all companies. In lieu of a sponsor Q&A today, and in keeping with today's episode theme of families and business, I want to briefly talk about a charity Michelle and I volunteer at here in Omaha, Nebraska, called Heartland Hope Mission. Heartland Hope Mission operates one of the largest food pantries in the state of Nebraska, and currently due to inflation, the number of families seeking help from the pantry are up 45% this year. Families struggling to make ends meet are in desperate need of assistance throughout the holiday season, and we are already on track to serve 4,000 children this year alone, which is double the numbers from last year. Heartland Hope has an Adopt-A-Family program, which allows donors to purchase gifts for children ages newborn to 17. Once you've signed up to adopt a family, you'll be provided with the child's wish list, clothing sizes, likes, gender, and favorite colors to make the shopping experience fun and easy. If you're not in Omaha, there are options to sponsor a family financially where you don't need to pick out gifts. But if you are in Omaha, you do have the option of picking out the gifts yourself from the list provided by the family. Gifts purchased for the family are dropped off at either the South O or West O locations, and the family is scheduled to pick up the gifts the week before Christmas. In addition to gifts, families will also receive a holiday pantry so they can prepare a meal at home on Christmas Day. You can learn more about this opportunity at heartlandhopemission.org Christmas and see other opportunities to donate across the site. Michelle and I have both volunteered and met the families that benefit from Heartland's help, and we know that every dollar makes a difference because we've met those folks firsthand. So instead of asking you to reach out to a sponsor today, I'm asking you to consider donating to Heartland Hope to support families in need here in Omaha. Once again, you can go to heartlandhopemission.org for information on donating. Thank you so much, and now to the episode. I think a fun place to start would be kind of re- reviewing your your background and starting from you know, the different family businesses that you've been either running or a part of uh, chatting with. And then I would love to hear also about the the Chicago Booth class that you've been teaching about family businesses. There's There's so much to dive into. I'd love to hear about all of it. Okay, so maybe I can start with how I even got to family business, because a lot of people assume that like, if you're in a family business, it's you know part of your legacy and it's something that you plan on doing for your whole life. And to be honest, it wasn't actually something that I thought about doing until I graduated business school. So I started in investment banking at Goldman Sachs and was there for the two-year analyst program. And honestly, at the time of my life with all my other analyst friends, and I've still kept in touch with them. And I loved the analyst experience but I knew I wanted to be in the client side. Like I thought it was interesting to figure out what happened after you raised that round of funding or after you went public, like you got all the money now and now what? And in banking, that's when you leave, you like go to the next client and do, you know, do whatever it is. So I decided to join Google to work on 
the maps team. And it was a really great experience because I got to now see like, oh, these are the this is what happens when you have cash and you get to invest in it. And, and Google is, of course, just, you know, such a fun place to be. But it was such a big organization. So even if it's very innovative, it just took a long time to make change. So I wanted to be either somewhere smaller or somewhere that was able to like bring finance and, and small business together. I thought maybe like startup or venture would be interesting. So I, I went to business school at that point because I was a little bit lost on where I wanted to be. And I worked for a really great angel investment firm and, and, and venture capital firm called Hyde Park Angels and Hyde Park Venture Partners while I was in business school. And I loved the ability to work with small businesses and to work with startups and to figure out whether or not to invest in them. And then again, I was struck with, well, I don't want to invest in them. Like we would be in this board meetings and I would want to just like shake the entrepreneur and say like, no, don't do it this way. Do it that way. Like I wanted to be the operator. When I was talking to my dad about this at the end of my two years of business school at the University of Chicago, and he was like, well, it sounds like what you really want to do is run a business. Like it doesn't sound like what you want to do is invest in one. It sounds like you want to be the operator. You want to have a say. And I was like, oh, yeah, I didn't actually think about that. So I'd got this Kaufman Fellowship, which is like a like a VC fellowship that you can have. And I got an offer in VC. And the last minute, literally, I think the week I was going to graduate, I was like, I can't do any of that. I'm going to join the family business. And I'm going to see where it takes me. And with my family business, there's no training. There's no onboarding. I just showed up to work the first day. And my dad didn't really tell me what to do. So I just sat at the first desk that was open and the phone rang and I would just answer the phone and see what the customer said. So if, you know, I noticed a lot of customers were talking like, where's my order? Like I, I placed this order and I don't know where it is. So based on what they were saying, I decided like, okay, well, I guess I should work on the operations of the business. Like they don't know where their orders are. So like, how do I solve that problem? So I like built out the whole warehouse system and then the next question was on like the quality side. So I could build up the quality system. Next question, you know, there are a lot of like sales questions. So I built out that side. So it all just happened from like hearing what customers wanted by just answering the phone. So that was my, my start with my family business. And what's the family business do? Oh, yeah. We sell amino acids and peptides to pharmaceutical companies and laboratories across the world. So we help enable drug discovery which is something that a lot of people don't even think about or know about, but has been part of my family for a long time. Like my father started the company in 1981, but his father was a chemist. And my on my mom's side, her father was a chemist. And they actually had an arranged marriage because they're all working in the chemical world together. So it's just kind of, yeah, kind of bizarre how it all is like in our family. And it's a chemical a very random thing. Yeah, exactly. A lot of puns that can be made about that. So one of the challenges I think working in a family business is that it's very insular. Like, you know, your family business, but a lot of times families don't really want to share about their families. And I, I was really interested in learning more. I mean, I, I'm just like, I'm a learner. I love to learn how different people do things. I want to get an idea of like what best practices are. So I went to Northwestern. They have like a really great family business program. And I got to meet a lot of other families who were kind of debating the same things we were debating. And I had decided that at that point, I wanted to get another experience at a different family business to see if our family would ever consider selling our business and what it would be like to have a private equity investor 
So I worked at another family-owned business that had sold to private equity investors and got that experience. And it was one that was very eye-opening in so many ways. And for me, it really helped reassure that I wanted to be at my own family business that didn't have any sort of private equity backing so that I had the liberty and the freedom to grow the business in any way I saw fit, whether it was aligned with returning X percentage to whatever shareholders or whether it was about really pursuing something that was also based on our values instead of returns. So that was an eye-opening experience to me. I would also say that the thing that I learned from working in a private equity-backed business as the chief operating officer was because the time horizon is so short, you're really forced to make somewhat suboptimal decisions for the business. Like you don't really get to think about what's the best long-term durable solution. And for me as a coming from a family business, it was really hard to do that because usually in a family business, you're investing for generations. You have such a long-term perspective that you often want to think about what's the, what am I going to implement that is going to be the most durable and when you're working in a private equity backed business, it's like the difference between renting a car and owning a car. Like you're not going to put premium gasoline in it. So that was definitely a challenge for me. So I, I joined my family business again and have been working on really kind of reinforcing a lot of the principles that I've, I've kind of taken for granted, I would say. So that's a bit about me and family business. <laughs> So within the Northwestern program and just other folks you've talked with, how do you feel like your company or your family business is run compared to others? Like, is there maybe three to four like general like categories of goals or, or ways of running or operations or missions, or is it like even more broad than that? And there's perhaps dozens of different ways that family businesses are run. Yeah. There's a saying in family businesses, family business that all family businesses are the same and they're all different. So they're all challenged with the same problems, like in the sense that, you know, you're thinking, you're always thinking about succession, right? Every single family business will have to tackle succession at some point. You're always thinking about growth, right? Because as you think about each generation, you're bringing on a whole new crop of people that now the business needs to support. But every business and every family is so different that I think what I learned is, yeah, we're all the same. We're all different, which is helpful and challenging all at the same time. The thing that what was most helpful is that you're not alone in this. I think I was really struggling for a point in time and feeling like there weren't any resources really available to people who are running family businesses and, and next generation leaders and family businesses. So to just feel like there are other people out there who are who are going through the same challenges, but also the same opportunities was really comforting. I'm curious, like, what was the, what do you think was the most interestingly run family business? Is there one that stands out in your mind for having the most kind of unique set of policies either around family or a mission or what have you, like any stick out in your mind the most? In the class that I was in at Northwestern, I, we had met the Lee Kum Kee family. So they're the family who does like Chinese sauces and flavorings. I think they're out of Hong Kong. And they've been around for like, I'm not even gonna get the numbers right, but like something like six generations. And what was super eye-opening to me about this family was one, they had so many generations that were in the business, but two, they really invested in their family. So everybody in the family 
received like some sort of stipend for any sort of educational expense that they wanted to any any sort of educational endeavor that they wanted to pursue, whether it was related to the business or not related to the business. And they really did a lot to educate future generations of the business starting at a very young age. So I think they had this level of pride in their business that I didn't really think about for some like a long point in a long time. Because sometimes in family business, you feel like a little bit of, I don't want to say like shame, but like people are, these are boring businesses. Like why nobody knows about them? Like if I, I mean, you know, you asked me like, what does my family business do? And I ramble on about something chemical related, like you're at a cocktail party and you're telling someone like, oh yeah, I sell, you know, acids and public. Like they're immediately looking at the door. Like they are not interested at all in what you have to say. So I I think for me, this is a small nuance, but in, in meeting the Lee Kum Kee family, I really loved just how much pride they had in their business and how they really valued education, both from a perspective of like, yeah, we will pay for your education, but also part of that is in instilling this this sense of like sense of like luck. Like they felt like very lucky and fortunate to be part of that business. So I thought that was kind of eye-opening to me. Yeah, I remember we talked about how there's a couple of things that are true about really well-run family businesses, those being like they're more stable, returns are higher, and they're often more trusted. And it sounds like keeping the business in the family and ensuring succession and kind of the long-term investment planning that you talked about earlier with your private equity-backed experience kind of feeds into that. Like, why why do you think those are generally true of well-run family businesses, like what goes into the, the like stability, trust and returns pieces? Yeah. So there has been research that's been done on, on family businesses in general to show that they outperform their counterparts. So what that means is they have superior returns and that they consistently over time have outperformed non-family owned businesses since there's a credit suisse research article since 2006. And coupled with that, the returns are more stable. So yes, during like boom times, family businesses don't earn as much money, but during like economic slumps, they outshine their peers. And I thought that was really interesting because family businesses tend to be risk averse, right? You're, you're not going to bet the house on something, which is Sometimes unconventional because usually, particularly in like a venture-backed business, you're thinking, well, more risk, more reward. And in family businesses, because you're not thinking that you're trying to minimize your risk, it's much more of a steady, stable return. And then related to that, people say that they trust family businesses more globally and they would rather work for a family business, which I thought was interesting. I think that really, I've actually found that to be the case that we've had a lot of employees come to us and say like, we feel like working at a family business. One, you feel good because you, there's a face there, but also a lot of employees have been burned by mergers and acquisitions and they feel like they don't have control over their own life because their employment is uncertain. And then that trustworthy factor also means that people are willing to pay more for your product because they feel like they can, you're more trustworthy. So I think those are like the three pieces that I think are most interesting and somewhat under the radar about family businesses that they have better returns, they're more stable and people trust them more. 
you mentioned earlier how the like the, your family business was, you know, might be boring to many people, like a chemical business. Like it's not the most exciting thing in a cocktail party. You're not running Apple or yeah. Google. But mm-hmm. I part of me wonders if that's what that, that's what all of these family businesses eventually like lead to, or like that's what like the general makeup of family businesses is because they're boring and more like like less flashy. Like the, I can't imagine, like if DoorDash, for example, was a family owned business, like who knows if it's going to be around for even the next five years or 10 years. So like, it's probably not possible for a business like that to become a family business. Whereas like the local, like mill halls, for example, meal halls here in Omaha is this huge, like landscaping business. They have an indoor nursery and greenhouse and they do a ton of stuff around the holidays. That business is a multi-generational business that's huge and it provides very basic services, kind of basic landscaping. You can buy trees there. We bought this juniper wreath that smells amazing and reminds us of Oregon. So like, but it's like a very basic service. Like it's not very fancy, but that's part of me thinks that that's why it became a family business because it was stable and doesn't change much. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I think the the business models are fundamentally different because in order to to build a business like DoorDash, right? You need like an incredible amount of money and you need to be able to scale as fast as possible. And the ability for a family to do that is probably somewhat limited. But I do actually think that there are really interested, interesting businesses that exist. I mean, I'm thinking about like my sister, she has a cosmetics line and it is amazing. Her product is one that like people really love and are, are just like very enthusiastic about. And she runs it very, you know, thoughtfully and conservatively. And, and she has this principle that she doesn't want to overstretch her boundaries. So I, I do think that like, you can still have an interesting business, but it's just, I think the matter, uh, it's just a matter of like, how fast and how aggressively do you want to create it? And I think that's a personal choice. And I don't think there's a right or a wrong. Like, I think, you know, sometimes people think that venture backed businesses are all kind of like, have a negative reputation because they're not necessarily thinking about the customer or the employee. And that may be true in some situations, but I do also think that there's a time and a place depending on what you're trying to do. But I do agree with you that there isn't always this need to like reinvent the wheel. There, there is a lot of opportunity in just doing something better. Yeah, I agree. We talked about that earlier in regards to kind of the different paths of entrepreneurship. Like a lot of the you know, common like entrepreneur classes, like for example, like some that I took in undergrad were focused on, you know, more venture style businesses. And that's kind of like what was the bulk of the topic of the class. But there's of course like dozens of different ways to be an entrepreneur. And um, I'd be, be curious to hear like some of your experience, like talking with folks who took lots of different paths and kind of maybe some observations you've had from all the variety of paths of entrepreneurship. Yeah. I mean, the one thing I will say is when I was in business school is that I felt like there was really only one path that was discussed. And that path was either you start a company or you invest in a company. And when you're starting that company, you need to, you know, step one, create a business plan, step two, raise funding for it. And like, as part of your business plan, you need to figure out when you're exiting that business and like what the return on investment is for your investors. And I didn't actually even realize that there were other types of ways to start companies and and to be entrepreneurial. And some of them are, you know, not very risky in the sense that you can work for a large corporation and like be their internal 
entrepreneur, which I think is a really cool opportunity. Um, but then there's also, and you talk about this a lot on your podcast, but ways to either buy a business, right? And you can buy that either by raising your own fund or through debt, SBA. And even if you're doing equity, you can do a minority investment. And I, I didn't really fully recognize that until after I graduated business school. And I will say even now business schools, I mean, this is actually the reason why I teach this course at the University of Chicago is we focus a lot on kind of, again, building the business and the the typical venture back business. We are starting to talk a lot about entrepreneurship through acquisition, which I think is a really great way to kind of be more entrepreneurial. The challenge I would say on the entrepreneurship through acquisition side is it's turning into this like mini private equity. It's again, how do you identify the business? How do you search for it? And then how do you flip it in like three years versus like, what does it mean just to build a business for a long time, create value for your, for your employees, for your community and, and not necessarily focus on selling the thing. It's more about just creating a profitable business that lasts for a long time. So I think, yeah, entrepreneurship can be so many different things. But for some reason, there's only like this very narrow lens that seems to be getting a lot of attention. And that's like the Shark Tank view. (laughs) Or like, even on the ETA side, it's like, how fast can you identify and turn around that business? Which I feel like is selling ETA a little bit short because there's so much opportunity there. It's like, you found the business and you see value in it. But like, why do we feel like we need to, to, to change hands? Like that, that short-term mindset is one that I feel like can, can pervert interests that, that aren't really beneficial to the community or, or your employees. Yeah, definitely. There's a, especially within private equity businesses, there's that kind of unique or specific focus on profitability and quickly turning things around. One interesting concept I've loved talking with you about is how many different kind of almost sets of missions there are for family run businesses. So businesses that fall outside the private equity realm and are either family owned or it's the you know, the founders still running their business that they bootstrap for 20 years. Each of them kind of have a, a slightly different mission statement for their business or goal that doesn't need to be very grandiose, but just something specific or that's driving them. Like, what are some of the kind of examples of business goals that you've seen within family businesses that you've studied? Yeah. So we've talked in the past, you and I, a bit about Chick-fil-A, and that's a really interesting business because they're so focused on like a religious based value. I think about my family business and, and we're really focused on like, what can we do to make our employees proud? Like that's, that's one of the, the, the values that we, we hold true. I think the interesting thing about family businesses is that they're often thinking about very different sets of goals. So, you know, the purpose of a family business is for continuity. Like you're thinking of how long you can you can keep this business running because it needs to support generations. But for non-family business, it's like, what's the near-term share price? Like what are the what are the shareholders going to think this quarter? And how do we optimize and maximize for that? I think for family businesses, like the goal is how do we kind of preserve assets and like the value, the values of the owning family versus non-family firm it's institutional investors and their expectations right because those are the people who are holding the most shares so how do you 
make them as happy as possible. For family businesses, I feel again, like the fundamental belief is protecting downside risk and they can be quite risk averse. And we talked a little bit about non-family businesses there, you know, more risk is more return. So it's like very opposite. Then I feel like with family businesses, it's a lot of like incremental improvement. I think I see this a lot in our family business too. It's a lot of like baby steps, partially probably to, to eliminate downside risk. But for non-family firms, it's a lot of like, how do we create like stepwise change? Like we need to innovate as fast as possible because if we don't innovate, then it's not going to be reflected in our, in our shareholder, in our share price. So it's, it's a different type of urgency. And then I think the most obvious one is like, who are the most important stakeholders? And for family businesses, it's customers, employees. For non-family businesses, it's like shareholders and management. So I think it's, they're, they're just like fundamentally different, but there's a lot that you can learn from family businesses and apply to non-family businesses. There's also a number of family business paradoxes you've pointed out. One being the kind of one you've even just alluded to is the, you know, do we, we have this business, but there's also a family, like who are we serving here? And a lot of these paradoxes are kind of like, they look at, they look like opposing interests, but often complement each other. I'd love to kind of hear some of the paradoxes you've identified with family businesses. Yeah. So a lot of this research comes from um, Amy Schumann, who, who who was with the family business consulting group, or she's still with them. And she wrote a book on the paradox of family business. And the one that you just alluded to, to is family first versus business first. And there's typically this push and pull in family businesses where they're thought of as either doing everything for the family or doing everything for the business. And in reality, that paradox is a false choice. It's not family or business, it's it's family and business. And by having family in the business, you're essentially eliminating the agency problem of hiring a manager that wouldn't really be seen as vigilant as the owner. So it actually works to your benefit that they're one in the same. Similarly, there's this idea of like tradition versus change and feeling like there's a false choice that you have to make. But actually, again, it works to your advantage because you can act, you can do both. Now you have the flexibility to do both. You don't need to always change in order to to continue improving. You can actually hone in on your on your on your core set of values that really make you who you are. And it sounds like this landscaping shop in 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 Omaha is similar to that. Like that's kind of the charm in them. And then again, there's like this idea of like investing versus harvesting. Like how do you know? when to keep putting back versus when to take out. And I think they actually play really well on each other and can provide opportunities for both employees to share in in value creation, as well as family members. So there's, I'm Jane, which is a small Indian religion. And there's a parable um, called the blind man and the elephant. And it's this principle of in Jainism, the principle is called anekantvada, or the idea of non-absolutism or many-foldedness. And it's the idea that reality is complex and multifaceted. And in this story, there's like five blind men and they, they come up to an elephant and they're all touching different parts of the elephant. So one person is touching the tail and saying, oh, it's a, it's a rope. Another person is touching the body and he's saying, oh, it's a wall. Another person is touching the leg and saying, it, it feels like a trunk, it's a tree. And in reality, they're all right. Like 
the thing that they are touching feels like that. And they are also all wrong because it isn't a rope or a wall or a tree that, that there is no, there is no right or wrong. And the challenge is that paradox can be really frustrating. And because of the non-absolutism, it, it, you feel kind of uncomfortable because there's no kind of sense of reconciliation. But the idea is that how do you move from this either or perspective to like a both and perspective? Like you can embrace tradition and change at the same time. You can be business first and family first. You just have to realize that you're not forced to make that decision. You now have the opportunity to make those decisions and to work together on them. Yeah, you mentioned it's kind of uncomfortable being in in these paradoxes. How do you feel like your family business handles being uncomfortable within these? Yeah, that's a really good question. I feel like for us, we're we're still learning. So sometimes we we don't manage it well, but we're we're in it together. But I think for us, it was really important to recognize there was no right and there was no wrong. And because of that, like that it created a lot of conflict in our family business um, in a good way. Like I think originally we didn't, we would avoid conflict at all costs. And again, like when you think about a paradox, you would think like arguing is a bad thing or arguing, you know, how could you even think that arguing is a good thing? But for us, we've recognized that being able to have like a very strong sense of the importance of conflict and to be able to resolve that conflict. It helped helped us kind of create buy-in. It helped us move together. It helped us feel like we weren't leaving anyone behind, which for us was more important. So the, the, I think the challenge for us was individual versus group. That was a paradox that we were struggling with. Like, who do you put first? And I think what we learned is you put both first, like that, that can sometimes mean that you're arguing, but in the end you move forward together. And, and it's, it's not necessarily compromise that we view it as, but collaboration that we view it as. Yeah. Do, do you think that the, that conflict is good and because it forces clarity or something else? I think it's good because it forces buy-in. I think if you don't have, there's like a, the five dysfunctions of a team, that book um, has been really helpful in bringing light to this topic. But if you don't have conflict, one, it shows that you don't have trust. You're not even, you don't even have the trust of the foundation to be able to, to say, I don't think this, or I do think this. So one, I think conflict, like a foundation for having good conflict is being able to trust one another. And then two, if you don't ever engage in kind of speaking your mind or hearing someone else's mind, you're never going to buy into what they said because you, you kind of stop short. So I think without conflict, you can't have buy-in and without buy-in, you can't achieve results because there's no accountability then. And without accountability, then there aren't results. So within the, within your class is your, are, are some of your conclusions that, these companies or these family businesses can be studied and some of these elements can be replicated or like, like which of these benefits of family businesses do you feel like can be replicated and used in other businesses versus some that are very specific to family businesses and are really hard to kind of bring that over to your own company? Yeah. 
I don't even know if I fully even explained what the class was. <laughs> so let me maybe step back for a second, if that would be helpful context. Please, yeah. At the University of Chicago, I teach a class called Outperform and Outlast, Operating and Investing in Closely Held Businesses. So it specifically doesn't speak to necessarily just family businesses. It's the idea of family businesses do outperform and outlast their counterparts, but what can you do to apply those principles to non-family businesses? So we talked a little bit about this idea of paradox. Like, how do you use paradox to your advantage, right? So I think first recognizing what those paradoxes paradoxes are and recognizing that you're not forced to make that, you're not forced to choose this or that. It can be both. And so that I think is something that's helpful for non-family businesses as well to think about, okay, well, I don't have to always think about just my shareholders. How do I think about a values-based business as well that also happens to support my my, my shareholders? How do I make sure those are aligned, that purpose is shared? Similarly, I think there's a lot of like unconventional wisdom in family business. And this is a concept from John Ward, who is like a like the father of family business. But you know, family businesses, they tend to be much more frugal, right? They don't carry that much debt. And sometimes, you know, that that I feel like in traditional business school was considered like um something that of course you get as much debt as possible. Then then you, you know, get the get to take advantage of the tax shield. And why wouldn't you do that? But I really think that in family businesses, they, they tend to associate debt, debt with like fragility and risk. And being able to really understand what true risk is, I think is really valuable for, for businesses in general. I also think family businesses tend to have, their research has shown that they tend to have better talent retainment compared to competitors. So being able to know like, okay, well, what is it about family businesses? Well, they tend to be longer term perspective, which is better for, for their employees, right? That gives them this, this feeling of, like we talked about trust, but also gives them a stronger work culture. You know, that's something that I think could be applied more broadly as well. The idea on like how you decide to spend on CapEx, a lot of family businesses, they, don't, they won't spend more than they earn. So this can sometimes lead to missed opportunities, but in times of crises, their exposure is limited. So these kind of unconventional principles in family businesses, I think, can be applied more broadly and 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 be used to people's advantage. The debt piece is pretty interesting. Do you do you think the the maybe the hurdle in family businesses to take on debt is just so much higher? Like there has to be an amazing reason for us to use debt versus maybe a private equity business where debt is more default and like there's less of a the hurdle is much lower for their using debt. Is, do you think that's what's happening, or is there's like a deeper? Like, I, I love like the uh, your discussion on like risk. Like, how does a family business view risk? Like, what does that look like? I'd love to kind of like debt and risk. I feel like are really interesting. Well, I mean, if you think about the cost of debt, it is essentially a proxy for risk, right? And that whoever is taking that risk on, they're going to value that slightly differently. I think for a private equity business. Debt is very much just a math equation. How much debt can you service? And that's like the basic math question that you're that you're figuring out. I think for a family, it's less how much can you service, but how comfortable do you feel servicing that debt? So, I mean, you personally, right? It's like, okay, if I'm going to buy a house, like, yeah, I could probably afford to pay that mortgage if like all of these factors are in place. But if I lose my job or if I decide I want to do something different. Like now I don't have that flexibility. 
And now that mortgage has now kind of taken on a higher value to me, higher cost to me. So I think it's much more, much more of a personal question when it's you and your money and your livelihood. And also maybe if you think about like your generations, both the ones that were behind you and the ones that now you're hoping to provide for in the future versus in, in like a a private equity business, it's, it's very different. It's, well, how do we take on as much as possible? And then also maybe how do we sell this quickly as possible? So we, we don't have as much exposure to that debt. Whereas again, in family business, like you're holding on to this for perpetuity, like maybe forever, ideally, right? If you can do it well. And do you want to be saddled with that burden for as long as possible for, you know, so long? Probably not. <laughs> I think there, the, the next question to really ask is, okay, well, clearly these businesses are successful, but a lot of them fail. Like a third of family businesses make it through to the next generation. Like that's a huge number. And, and, and why is it? So like, how do you set yourself up for success? And how do you like, how do you manage continuity? And I think the way to do that is making sure that you've created a shared value system across generations. And I think that's something that is actually quite difficult to do to have this set of values that transcends generations that people can buy into. And that needs to be somewhat adaptable and flexible because different generations value different things, but at the same time, you need to kind of hold just enough the same, which I think, again, goes back to this like tradition versus, versus change mindset. So some of it is like, okay, these principles exist, but now how do you do it? And I think a huge challenge in family businesses that CEOs tend to stay for a very long time. So in family businesses, the CEO is generally there for the tenure is like 20 years. In a publicly traded business, it's like four to five years. And the right answer for like maybe the optimal CEO tenure is probably somewhere in between. So the I think the challenge in family business is that when is the right time to let go? And like, how do you create the right system so that letting go is, is comfortable for the person who has to let go. And that part of that is making sure that they feel like the next generation is able to, and even capable of one and interested to take on. So there's like a lot of pieces that are moving that make it difficult to actually make the family business perpetuate. but. I think if you could make it work, it's worthwhile. How often is the CEO of the family business a member of the family? And does that change over time? Like in generation five or six, like, is it still a family member? Or by that point are fewer people interested in it? It's now most of the time an external CEO. Yeah. You know, there's actually research and I think I have this book here. Uh, let me tell you because in family businesses, they all kind of go through a certain life cycle, right? The first, you know, first, of course, it's founder owned and, and led. And then afterwards, it's it, it's probably sibling, sibling led. It's like a sibling partnership and then a cousin consortium. And I would say the CEO or the outside manager usually comes in when it's too hard for the groups to manage together. Right. So then it tends to be after the third generation. I think there's actually research on like when that is and I'm trying to remember which generation that is, but I think it's usually generation three or four. But there's no like, again, like no right or wrong. Like you could very well be 
you know, a founder who decides I don't want to pass. I don't want my children. I've seen this happen. Like, I don't want my children to be involved in the day to day. We're going to hire an outside CEO. And the children's responsibility is just to manage the business as owner. So in family business, there's this concept of the three circle model. There's the business, there's ownership, and then there's management. And in family businesses, there's the three circle model and there's business, which can be viewed as management. Then there's family and there's ownership. So if you think about those circles as like overlapping, each one of those people has a different set of interests. So it all depends on like who, what you're trying to optimize for in your family. So there's no right or wrong answer. Again, every family is the same and every family is different, but I found, and this is just like what I've found from just like talking to different family members is, or different family businesses is that usually like in the third generation where it's difficult to kind of get all those people on the same page. One kind of balancing act within those interests that we talked about as well is kind of liquidity and control. And some want to maintain as much control as possible or some want to be want dividends or to be bought out. And there's like a whole bunch of different ways to kind of set up what each family member gets. How is that balancing act kind of thought through among family businesses? Yeah. So the framework that a lot of people use is called the family business triangle. So it's how do you manage liquidity, control, and capital. So that capital is being used to fund growth. And the more kind of control that you want to give up, then generally you're going to take on more outside investment. So I think it's a balancing act between all those three pieces. And and it really, again, depends on what you're trying to to accomplish to maintain that equilibrium, depending on for your family. Like some people are very okay giving up some control in order to have more capital so they can grow their business faster. And and, and that uh, is totally fine. I think it's just important to understand, well, these are the kind of the three pieces that are playing a factor in your decision-making with how much control you want to have or need to have. And I know in our family business, like that's probably the most important things. We probably in, over-indexed on, on the need to have control. But again, you know, now we don't have to like have a board meeting or, 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 you know, present financials to anyone. But at the same time, we can't, we don't get to move as fast as other, as other people. And that's, that's the, the trade-off that people, that you have to make personally. We have two closing questions. One, the first one I'm really excited to hear your, your response on is what, what strongly held belief have you changed your mind on? I'd be curious if there's anything in family business that you've changed your mind on or your family over, over generations has changed your mind on. Like, I'd love to hear any, what your, what your thoughts are there. Um, I would say two things. One, I mean, I, I truly feel like, I truly feel like family businesses are, are gems. Like there's a lot of challenge, right? There's a whole new set of things that you need to deal with. I mean, sometimes when I tell people like, work with my parents, they're like, I could never work with my parents. I could never work with my sibling. I never work with XYZ person. And I think when you're on the outside and sometimes when you're on the inside, I, I totally understand that. But I honestly feel so fortunate that I get to come to work every single day and I get to see my dad and I get to talk to my sister. And it's, it's actually really awesome to, to get to experience family in a different way. So there's that. And then I talked about this a little bit before, but just the role of conflict and how important it is to be able to engage in, in healthy conflict, even if it can be uncomfortable. I like that. That's a great one. What's the best business you've ever seen? 
I mean, that's an easy one for me to say. Of course, it's my family's business. But I say that, uh, you know, half half joking, but also in quite honest, like in all honesty, I feel like we are truly the luckiest people in the world to have this business as part of our lives. And my dad was able to kind of identify a niche where we're supporting people who are really changing the world, people who are kind of developing drugs for cancer and diabetes and like huge problems, but also other huge problems like baldness, you know, like things that, uh, you know, just affect people. And I love that we get to support the scientists and the chemists in that endeavor. And at the same time, it's a business that is is profitable and has great margins. And the people on our team, our employees are just outstanding. So I, I really do feel very fortunate that this is the space that we're in, which is one that I, I think, again, is, is one that people don't think about very often. And of course, our customers are ones that, that don't change very frequently. Once, once you're with them and you're part of their FDA process, it's very difficult for them to move away from you. So it's quite sticky. So I'm very thankful to be in the business that I'm in. Yeah, definitely the best one for a lot of reasons. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking about not only your own family business, but your other endeavors around family business generally. I hope eventually there's a, a stream that I can download of your class and your class sessions. Yes. I'd love to be able to watch one day. But and until then, we'll keep having podcasts and have stuff come out and would love to you know keep reading about all the resources you have we'll we'll find a way to link to a couple articles that that you sent me over and we'll we'll have those for folks to read i think those would be really helpful that sounds great yeah my pleasure i'm happy to chat with anybody who's interested about these topics or wants more insight or or anything like that i'm 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 really interested in in exploring this and and think it's something really special so thank you for taking time to learn a little bit more about me and and the things that i'm excited about Absolutely. There's so much interesting stuff that you're working on and covering. That's it's fun to chat with you. So until next time. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Put In Strong, Overly Risk Strategies, More Staffing, and Oakborn Advisors for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast.